21CL Radio. You're listening to the Run Your Life podcast with host Andy Vassar. Hello, everybody. Welcome to my Run Your Life podcast series. Uh, welcome to the podcast if it's your first time listening. And welcome back if you have listened to podcasts in the past. And as always, I thank you for your time and energy. Um, if you are a repeat listener, I really appreciate it. Um, very happy today to be recording live uh, in a very cool place. I'm going to let uh, my first guest describe where we're recording this podcast right now. Um, I have two guests. It's, it's um, one of those shows where I have um, the pleasure to interview two amazing people in education. And um, just to kind of share again with um, my listeners that the theme of my podcast is all about uh, sharing stories from the world of education and beyond, of uh, people who take initiative and action to strive for both personal and professional excellence. And my two guests today truly embody that, and that's why I'm uh, having them on my podcast. So without further ado, I will introduce my first guest. Actually, she will introduce herself, so please go ahead. Okay. I'm Maddie Hewitt, and um, we are podcasting here from the shores of the Red Sea at the amazing university campus of KAUST, which is King Abdullah University of Science and Technology, a wonderful community where we run a beautiful pre-kindergarten through 12th grade international baccalaureate world school. And my job is director of the school. It's been a privilege and an honor to serve. For six more months. And I'm in it for six more months. Yeah, we will tell, <laughs> we will let you tell everybody what you're going to be doing next. Um, but truly an amazing view. I mean, we're looking out at the Red Sea right now, just out your backyard here. It's, it's truly beautiful. Um, my second guest today, can you introduce yourself? Yes, my name is Catherine Berger Kay, and I'm a guest at this wonderful home, uh, staying with Maddie and... Um, husband cabbie for another for a week i live in los angeles uh, and i travel all over the world bringing ideas about service learning improving teaching strategies and how to really engage an entire community in being a really hub for learning and growth right and we're going to learn a lot about that as the podcast goes on today so i thank you for uh, to both of you for your time so um actually the, the list of questions that i sent you this week um a couple of, of them are, it's the first time I've ever asked these questions to wow. my podcast guests, so you're going to unpack these questions uh, first. Um, so I'm going to start right away. Just to give people a little bit of backstory, I wanted to do it in an interesting and, and fun way. So this is your chance to kind of give my listeners just a, a snippet glimpse into who you are and, and kind of what you've done. So to allow my audience some insight into who you are and what you've done. I want you to imagine a slideshow playing. We've all seen slideshows on Facebook of our friends' vacations or other life moments. So in these slideshows, when we're watching our friends' slideshows on Facebook, you'll see these beautiful pictures pop up with music playing in the background. It might be a vacation or a special moment in your life. So what I want you to do, and maybe we'll have Kathy start, is to 
um, give us, imagine your, a slideshow of your own life and kind of whatever moments have, have um, been big moments in your life that have led you on your journey. So what pictures would people see of your life to give a snippet and a backstory into who you are and what you've done? Why would you have, uh, why have you chosen these, these pictures? And what song would be playing in the background? Didn't think about this. Okay, so okay. take it away, Kathy. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Nothing like something simple to get us started. Um, well, it's interesting because I did think through this slightly, but now I have a whole different take on it. So my first photograph would be my grandmother, Grandmother Esther. And the reason is, is that she taught me about generosity. I watched her being generous constantly. And the generosity of heart and spirit and action embedded in me, I believe, uh, a sense that that's just part of who we are. And I think it's significant I learned that from my grandmother uh, because I also saw it in my mother and I see it in my sisters. And not that men can have this, but yeah. there's, but I have two daughters. So the, yeah. there's, there's this thing among, this experience among women in my life that has been very exquisite in terms of who I've become. And I, I know that what I do is an extension of these amazing people in both directions. What's your grandmother's name? Esther. Esther, Esther okay. Lewis. Um, I'd also have to see me on the stage. Starting from being a young girl, I enjoyed doing theater. And I, what I love about theater is it helps you become, it helps you understand what emotions are and opportun- and experiences. Mm. Because the way I approached theater was I believe, and I believe that I could be in any, any place or any experience in the world and have a range of emotions there. And I think that's helped me have a sense of community with others. And there's a great sense of community in theater. And I think that helped me understand, appreciate all kinds of people because we all know there's all kinds of people in theater and it helped expose me to a variety of ways of being in the world. How old would you be in that picture? Oh, I think I would probably be six, probably 16 or 18. Okay. But it, it went in lots of directions. Okay, so we have grandma and we have theater. the stage. Theater. We have the stage. What's next? Uh, I think we would go to a one-room schoolhouse in rural Maine. Nice. That was my first teaching job. And I have the photograph, I know it. And it was really isolated. It was up a dirt road in Temple, Maine. Actually, it was on Blueberry Hill. Uh-huh. And I taught with two amazing educators. Well, it was a school founded by these educators. They weren't there. George and Mabel Dennison. George wrote the book, The Lives of Children. And his wife, Mabel Dennison, he wrote it about her and the work. It was apparently the first book on progressive education. I got to teach it. A Private school, school? Yes, it was an independent school. Okay. We had 22 kids and three teachers. Multi-grade level. Multi-grade. Oh, so I cool. actually taught one math class with a 6-year-old and a 16-year-old who did math That's on the same amazing. level because the kid was a math genius. And what year would this be? This was um, when I was in my 20s, Okay. my mid-20s. Right. It's so my first teaching job. I had an outhouse, and I had to stoke the fire in the morning. I mean, a little house in the prairie. Completely. <laughs> yeah. What I learned from Mabel Dennison is to listen to the children, yeah. and that was a, a seminal idea because that wasn't anything I'd really thought of, that learning comes from the children, mm-hmm. building from their interest skills and talents, and that became a long-term theme. And from George, he was always saying, where's the chaos? And it helped me understand creative chaos. And that's where, for me, my next photograph would come okay, from, cool. which, was, which has to do with me engaging uh, young people in doing some kind of social action, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's uh, interviewing elders so that they can record the stories of their lives or cleaning up uh, a beach and finding all these straws from a particular kiosk and then going to the kiosk and saying, we don't want you to give out any more straws so that mm-hmm. this doesn't come back. 
um, that the Dutch elm disease that hit the trees gave me an experience to see students' real concern for them having a cause and for me to build learning around that. When I was the least informed of the group and I got to be the one to say, how do we find out and follow the lead of youth being a guide? This was this was extraordinary for me as a person and then ultimately infused all my work as a teacher. Yeah, that, um, I just want to time out there because that reminds me of my first teaching job was at the Hiroshima International School in Japan. And I imagine our school was up on beautiful school up on top of a mountain overlooking kind of the, the hills and valleys of, of Hiroshima, about 14 kilometers from the epicenter of the um, atomic bomb. And uh, across from our school was something called the, um, it was the survivor's home. So it was a residential home for the elderly who had been stricken with illness from the A-bomb. So most of the people in there, there was probably a couple hundred um, elderly people living there. Um, It was amazing to me that the school had never tried to develop a relationship with them. So eventually we got our students, our cast students, to go over and and just get to know them and and interview them. And it was a great thing to work on their Japanese skills. But such an amazing uh, learning moment for the kids and like true service because they were giving something to the elderly and the elderly were giving giving something back. And that reciprocity is a key element of service learning. Where At some point you don't even know who's being served. That's to me the ultimate when you don't even know. It's so engaging. Yeah. So that's so we have grandma, we have the um, the, uh, the stage, we have the schoolhouse, we have service learning. Right. Anything else? Yes, um, I'd have to say books. I would see me just surrounded by books. I'm a bookaholic um, and an author and an author. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I I got involved with in the '80s, actually, I was um, it was the first publication on. I was editor of the first publication on service learning that was national in the United States. And I was looking for a centerfold for this one publication, one issue. And I thought of books with heart. And that led me on a journey that continues to this day of identifying literature, fiction and nonfiction for all age young people that inspires young people to action. And then in addition to that, it led me to the curiosity about why people write these books. So I've interviewed 40 authors, so I've oh, been wow. in your place. Oh, cool. So I've interviewed 40 authors yeah. so far. So when I finish a book, if it's for children or young adults, and it wows me, I call the author and I yeah. interview them. So I've interviewed some of my amazing... Uh, authors are my heroes. Yeah. So I've interviewed them and had the privilege of listening to how they write their stories and where they come from and helping them to know how we're going to use them for young people to have impact in their world, which they don't always know is possible. And that's been an extre- extremely uh, astounding and unexpected byproduct of this work I've been doing. Yeah. And I've done workshops with some of these people, and it's been a real honor. But I would just definitely have a slide of me surrounded by books. I, I hear kind of some themes emerging of like really following your passion in life, that you were lucky to know what you're, mm-hmm. you were passionate about. And that idea of taking risk to connect with others, yeah. you know, and I find on my podcast, when I reach out, I've had a few best-selling authors on my podcast and Olympians. And at first I was always like a bit hesitant to reach out. They don't know me. They know nothing about me, but oftentimes I get very positive responses and people really do want to share their Absolutely. work and their, and their journeys. So. so I think of two more photographs. I'll okay. tell you quickly. One has me with Philippe Cousteau, which is kind of fun because he's a fascinating guy. But the reason is, is because we wrote two books together 
on uh, oceans and on getting kids involved with protecting the oceans. And what I learned from working with him... Can you say the name again? Yes, Philippe Cousteau, Jacques Cousteau's grandson. Okay, yeah, I, yeah. Yeah. And what I learned is, is, you know, we hear about some of these people, like the Cousteaus, you know, Jacques, yeah. Jacques Cousteau, and you hear about them. And then to have that kind of relationship with a person who's who has embodied from his grandfather, who's a legend, an icon, really, done so much, to be able to learn and to work with them was an amazing gift yeah, for me. For sure. And um, I realized that I was a sci- I did not know, I discovered my inner science nerd, mm-hmm. I think, yeah. which I didn't know I had, yeah. so I, which I was thrilled to discover. Yeah. So that has, was a gift that I found. And then the last photograph would be my family. We'd have to have my family. Because mm-hmm. when I think of who's really taught me the most in life, uh, it's been my husband and my children. I mean, of course, my birth family, too. But right now, this picture yeah. will have my husband and my children. Um, my daughters are now much older. They're in their, their 30s. But um, they still continue to teach me about how to walk the earth and how to have a sense of humor and how to listen well. I think that's been a gift. And then I learned from them all. Are the time. either how, how many daughters? Two. Are any of them either of them educators? One actually works for the New York uh, Public Department of Education. Okay. She actually does, but she does it different angles. She's more on the political side. Um, but they're both involved in s- service. The one who works in public service through her work in Department of Education in New York, and the other has a company. But in that company, they contribute uh, to nothing but nets. To help with malaria relief. Oh, okay. Nice. So that they bring in service into their life just lets me know that somewhere along the line we did okay. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> because that's just so important as that continuum of, you know, from my grandmother all the way down to yeah. what will hopefully be them carrying on just, you know, the, the good work that's Nothing needed. Nothing makes the world more of a better place than, than that type of, right. you know, learning and, and service, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, so what would be the song so we're looking at the, the slideshow song. we're seeing these great pictures uh-huh. transition over to one another what song would be playing in the <laughs> background that, that kind of captures your journey oh goodness the only song and I'm actually surprised it's coming to me is Pharrell Williams Happy okay that's a great one <laughs> it just won't leave my head and it's because first of all I love that song yeah. and I love what he did with the song with the slides and visuals of all these people dancing I love to dance I just it, it gives me tremendous joy to dance and that song I mean I've been so fortunate with all the people all with all the way my life has occurred and all these people I've met and all these places I've traveled that I do hope I no matter what's going on in the world around me, that I can always keep this inner joy. Yeah. And um, and in the work I do, communicate that to others. Yeah. So I'm going with I'm going with happy. I, I think that science proves that um, <laughs> having that that sense of purpose uh, leads yes. to happiness and fulfillment. And the TED Radio Hour that we discussed in the pre-show, they have a yeah. great episode called "Simply Happy." Yeah. And that song Pharrell was interviewed by Guy Raz, the host, um, at the start of the show. Oh, that song was kind of the theme. Yeah of that uh, episode so excellent we're going to slide over to Maddie now to uh, give us a glimpse into her slideshow what would your slideshow be oh my goodness well I I have to start by saying it's it's inspiring to hear Kathy's slides because I think the the exercise has one you know what are you going to include and what are you not going to include sort of selective and so you think of your journey and your learning and how you travel through it and you want to include all those elements mm-hmm. um, that are very formative, mm-hmm. whether it's our, our family, our family mm-hmm. of origin, 
our family later and um, our influences, our early influences, our images of self, our creative experiences. So as I was listening to you, I was hearing all those things, and we've had the great pleasure of uh, connecting after several years, <laughs> um, and we have just been talking about these influences mm-hmm. all weekend You've known long. Each other for how many years, Maddie? I was trying to think, Kathy. Is it over t- ten? Yeah, around ten, 10 years. Okay. Maybe ten, 10 years ago we met. Maybe a little longer. Yeah. Maybe fifteen years yeah. ago we met, yeah. and Kathy in South Africa, in South right. Africa right. where Kathy was uh, came to help us with understanding service learning and doing service learning in a way that was very integrated. Mm -hmm. So um, we ended up having kind of immediate connection then, and Mm -hmm. (laughs) we've seen each other since, but we've enjoyed sharing our journeys. And that's, I think, the thing about, um, you know, my slides along with Kathy's, we have found we have many things in common Mm -hmm. as educators, values and beliefs, but also even interests, passions, and pathways. So over this weekend we've been sharing um these stories and and i would say if i were to start my first slide would probably be that formative uh shot of me in kindergarten because that's when i started my schooling journey and my whole life for 50 years has been in schools Mm -hmm. i've never been away from school (laughs) which is has been a joy and it's because i found school a happy place and that's why i've stayed in school because i love school And I always have loved school since kindergarten. I went to a beautiful kindergarten, and as they say, everything you ever needed to know, you learn there. And I have that joyful experience from the start and then onwards in would the school. Would the five-year-old Maddie in kindergarten be yes. shy? or The five-year-old Maddie, outgoing. you would see the five-year-old Maddie in a huddle with other children learning. And I think that would be the yeah. through line in every slideshow. I'd always be in a learning huddle. Right. Because what I love is, and someone wrote it once, in a letter, um, Maddie, you love people and ideas. And I, that is what I love. I love people and ideas. I love, love those things so much yeah. that I think that's what you'd see in, in most every slide that I chose. So um, I think the kindergarten would be that happy place that started my, my wonderful odyssey in schooling. Um, and I'd move on to probably a shot of me at camp which was another wonderful learning environment that Kathy and I have talked about too, the power of camp and the joy of camp. Like summer camp? Summer camp. Yeah. And I was both a camper and a camp counselor. And I think those formative experiences also led me to just, I think, looking back at it, they were probably important in terms of my eventual career choice mm-hmm. because I think I loved, again, people, ideas, activity, learning, and dimensional learning. So today we'll be talking a bit about service learning. So I like holistic learning. I like learning that's head heart. Mm -hmm. Um, I had those experiences. They were most formative to me. I always try to instill them in the schools that I'm in and the classrooms that I'm in and Mm -hmm. with the teachers that I work with. So I think camp would be another one. And another um, thing, if I were in a huddle at camp, I might be engaged in a skit which <laughs> Kathy and I share this passion. We're both theater majors. Um, I became a literature major with a theater minor eventually, but we both have a passion for theater and did a lot of theater. And I think somewhere that slide would show Maddie as actor and in that third creative space, which Kathy talked a little bit about. It allows people to experiment, explore, be safe. Develop confidence. Develop confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, find identity, explore human challenge, human dilemma. That 
to me was very much a compelling space for me and I loved it and I have that in common with Kathy and I think it's kind of when we talk about how we eventually chose education it's because it really endorses those sorts of things through creative and inspirational uh, learning experience so kinder camp college I loved college (laughs) you went to Harvard right I went, I went to Harvard for graduate school, okay. and undergraduate school I went to um, Mount Holyoke College, which is an all-women's college, which was also extremely Where? formative. It's in South Hadley, Massachusetts, okay. in the Connecticut River Valley. Okay. So it's part of a five-college uh, group of schools, Amherst, Smith, Mount Holyoke, Hampshire, and University of Massachusetts. Okay. And when I went, you could take courses at any of the five colleges, but you were identified with the college. and. I've had a very wonderful experience in that college. It's the oldest women's college in America. So it comes with a very strong um, attention to issues with women and higher education and education period, which was very influential in my life. And I had a fantastic time in both theater and English departments there, fell in love with literature, mm-hmm. had fantastic professors. You'd again see me in that slideshow, if not on stage, then in a seminar class in a huddle. Yeah. <laughs> with, like with learners. Learning with others. Learners, yeah. yeah. And I had fantastic professors and um, classmates that I remain close to to this day. Yeah. So that would be a slide. I might... Um, go from there to teaching because I taught right out of college and um, I had such a great experience um, one of the first I did an internship at a small independent school and then I was hired at an independent school in Seattle Lakeside School and I had fantastic mentors at the Lakeside School great school um, and a fantastic headmaster Dan Aro who uh, believed that the most essential trait and what he was most proud of in the students at our school was the trait of curiosity. Mm. And Which I, is fundamental basics in the PYP, right? Fundamental. Yeah, yeah. Inquiry-based learning, yeah. curiosity, following the learner, as Kathy says, listen to the children, listen to their curiosity. Human beings are curious. Mm-hmm. And if we can focus on the curiosity... Lots of things come from that. So that was a very influential chapter in my life. Um, And then maybe the final uh, slide would be um, international education because I uh, went off from the Lakeside School with my beloved husband and partner of 30 years now, just had our 30th anniversary. And we took off to international schools when we were you know, 26 and 29, and um, and we've been there ever since. So we've spent a long career, 30 years in international schools. And I think, again, you'd see us in a huddle, but it could be in a very exotic <laughs> setting yeah. from Tanzania to Cairo to Saudi Arabia um, and a few other ones in there. So I think that would be um, maybe the other. And I do also have been very much influenced by my children, mm-hmm. as Kathy has, so... The family element definitely plays a part. So it's hard to be selective. (laughs) Well, it's a nice snippet glimpse, and there's a lot of common themes in both your journeys, right? Um, Song? Song, it would definitely be the Beatles, just because they were the most... Which um, one? Well, do I have to choose, or could I have a string of them? You can have a string. Okay, as a string, I would probably say, um, in my life, 
and would be one of them. I might have across the universe and um, maybe let it be. Okay. I was thinking of this, um, this question. It is kind of a tough question. And I was wondering how I would answer the question. So I was running this morning kind of thinking about it. And I thought my song would probably be St. Elmo's Fire. Remember the St. Elmo's Fire movie? Yes, yeah, I And did. I thought that theme song just yes. always struck a chord with me. You know, and it's, it's just that idea of a, of a journey, just yeah. constantly going on this journey and, and, and learning, and there's ups and downs and pain and yeah. happiness and joy. But, you know, that song meant a lot to me growing up. So we've kind of, now we have a, a bit of backstory into, um, you know, who you are and, and your life. And I, I kind of want to move on to like if we were to look at the the tangibles in your life it's very anybody can see the success that you've had your your position in education you're a director you've been a consultant and an author for years people can see your books people can can see what you've done maddie right um but what are the intangibles you know and that's what fascinates me about people and their journeys it's that what happens behind the scenes in their, their thinking, things that we cannot see. So what are the intangibles that people can't see that have led you to uh, achieve the success that you have? So what are those fundamental things that are happening kind of behind the scenes? Well, I think for me, and I, I'm sure because Kathy and I have, have discussed this, but one of the intangibles is creativity. A genuine creativity of of um, exchange, uh, open mindedness, mm-hmm. um, ability to imagine. I think when we think about um, what you just said, it's an odyssey. So if we're learners, we have to take in, we have to create and recreate, and it's a constant iterative process. And so that's why, again, when I say the Beatles, it's that they represent for me that odyssey of you know transformation over time. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, where they hit sort of on an emotional as well as an intellectual level. But it's a, it's a transformative journey theirs was. And so is the music. And yeah. so is our journeys as learners, lifelong, as you say, from a little child, you're five years old, what were your formatives, and then later. So I would say creativity is one of the key intangibles mm-hmm. of being Staying creative, staying open to influence, not becoming too stuck in our ways. And Kathy and I have talked about this a lot this week of um, just being able to evolve our approaches to education because it is forever changing and we don't want to ever be the same. So that's one that I would say. Well, I think um, just to interject there and and Ken Robinson's talk on schools kill creativity is such a powerful talk, Mm -hmm. right? Viewed by, I think, like 10 or 15 million people now, but... Um, you know, he tries to get people to understand that schools oftentimes do kill creativity, you know, and, yes. and it's, it's so important for teachers to be aware that there is a, a time and a place for uh, direct instruction, um, but oftentimes, you know, really bringing out the best in kids in, in regards to their creative abilities is probably the most important thing. You know, and I think I just wanted to echo what you had said, but um, well, I just want to tag onto what you said, and then I'll get into my my thought. But you were just saying about there are times for instruction, and there's a big difference between instruction and education. And you alluded to that in your statement because you said when well, instruction is you put in, so the child is more passive. 
but you said to bring bring out. I think you made yeah. that. And education it comes through the Latin educe to bring forth. So I think we have to be very cognizant of when we work with children, what we're doing and what's the dominant path path we're doing. And if it's all about instruction, if the kids are always asking, "What do you want me to do?" which means, "What do you want me to do to please you?" Mm-hmm. it really is instruction much more than education, and that's a big challenge today. So the compliance, con- yes, yeah, Daniel oh. Pink's work is amazing when it comes yes. to. Control and compliance. Right. And you know. what, that book, Drive, is just yeah, a phenomenal yeah. book. Um, so for me, and, uh, just to build on creativity, so one of my biggest shocks I had, you're talking about real shocks, was I was student teaching. This was back in Boston and at a school in Lincoln, Massachusetts. I was working with a wonderful teacher who had a combined third and fourth grade classroom. And I think it was the first day I was student teaching where I thought, oh my gosh, I didn't expect this. And what the it was, I didn't expect that the kids could see right through me. That they would call me on everything. Sorry, what grade was it again? Third, fourth. Third, fourth, okay. And what, I, what it made me leave, understand is this concept of authenticity. That they know when you're being real and when you're not. When you're trying to be, trying to be, you know... Just give them a, a bill of goods or when you're really sharing something that matters. Yeah. And I think that has um, been something that's really carried me forth in, in many ways. That I need to be authentic in how I'm thinking and what I'm presenting and be clear on what matters to me and my sense of purpose. I'm very much a purpose-driven person. I don't use the word goal in my book except to say why I don't use the word goal. Um, because I think we're overly goal-oriented in schools today and I think it yeah. is just creates just a, a tragic dynamic yeah. and the word goal also comes with a Latin root similar to jail and just boxes us in so I'm driven by a sense of purpose that ties to the sense of authenticity and you know it challenges me all the time you know is am I being sincere is this real you know it's what I'm doing significant so I have a few factors that really guide my work with education and what I'm doing and whether I'm working with adults or children or students of any age um, it's that sense of authenticity Driven by a sense of purpose. Which is totally supported by Ron Richard and one of the cultural forces in, in his amazing book. Uh, that book is... Um, Cultures of Thinking. Else. Cultures of Thinking, forces. Yeah. And he talks, he gives the example of that one teacher in the book who he was so amazed by the connection that she had with her kids and how this teacher that he describes in the book actually takes the kids through her own thought process and... and she journals regularly and and um, really being her authentic self. Um, and a lot of times teachers um, feel as though they cannot make themselves vulnerable uh, in front of their students. So the dog is snoring. dog is snoring. <laughs> yes. You might be hearing it in the podcast. Um, but it is, um, yeah, just to support what you're saying, the importance of relationships and making ourselves vulnerable as educators and, and kids really do see right through us. You know? Well, it's, it's the whole difference also between... I used to think it was good enough to be relevant to kids, and it isn't. Because relevant is all right, and there's time to be relevant, but they want real. They want real. They can be in real time in all kinds of places. They want real, and I think real is challenges us even more than being relevant. How to be real and keep, you know, keep it real. You know, that expression. It's scary. Yeah, it it's like how to be real. And I think it does challenge some teachers who... I want to skirt around the edges or may not have a level of comfort in how to work in these ways. I think it's what where education needs to go in that sense of... So I have six criteria for what I call a learning experience. It's real, 
significant, engaging, purposeful, um, I'm going to skip one, unfortunately, challenging, mm-hmm. and an adventure. Mm. You know, because adventure comes from the idea of being able to embrace the world. Yeah. So it's these are things that guide me as part of the. We've been talking about, but the important that structure can give us, and within the structure, there's a lot of freedom. Yeah. So these are like a criteria I've set for myself, and then I lose. Yeah, the dog's snoring even louder him. now. <laughs> bring him to a it's nice little bed across the room. Um, we didn't account for that. We didn't. <laughs> we didn't account. It's that idea, um, Kathy, also that I've seen in teachers through the consulting work that I've, I've done in the past is that when teachers are obviously very product-driven, they lose that sense of keeping it real and making it relevant because it's more about, and you see some amazing teachers that can push the best out of students, but it's very product-driven. Yeah, rather than process. Yeah. And learning is a process, it's a journey, and we can't always know what the end point will be for each child. We might we might all be doing the same learning, but for you it may be better to go here. You know, and I know we talk a lot about differentiation, but really getting there is challenging. Yeah. Um, anything to add? Feel free to add anything else. Well, I think that's all you've been talking about. Um, the journey, and that's what I think we always want to come back to, is it can also, the learning sometimes doesn't happen in a time frame that schools sort of acknowledge. And that I find a fascinating idea. Of when, I, when we look back and say, where was the pivotal learning? Sometimes you can have experience that years later you realize about the learning, and the learning may have been nested in there somewhere. And it take, it's not in that linear, concrete, industrialized way that we mm-hmm. have things set up sometimes in our learning institutions. It's very true. Yeah. I'm trying not to laugh right now with the dog snoring. <laughs> this is the first time I've ever had a dog snoring on my podcast. <laughs> I'm going to bring him into his own little baby pie. He's hard to move. Um, <laughs> now, Kathy, maybe as Maddie gently brings her dog into the other room... <laughs> Um, can you kind of share in regards to being a leader in education, you know, we talked about creativity and being your authentic self, but is there anything that has allowed you to achieve success as a leader? Is there anything in particular that has driven you? Or that you've had to work on developing? Or well, I think there's a couple, well, there's quite a few things. I think... Uh, the word that just keeps coming to me is listening. I think um, I've learned to listen well. And every environment I'm in is different. And if I go in with a lot of preconceptions on what Calist will be like compared to International School Kuala Lumpur or, or a school in North Carolina, it's very important for me to be observant and listen and to be, as a wonderful t-shirt says, be mindful and present. <laughs> That that's what um, part of my role is, and to enter into to space with bringing all I know and all the, the all I carry from all these people and readings and experiences, but to apply them in fresh and new ways, mm-hmm. and to think of where I am as the context. I think this is something I've really. hopefully do well and that I've really honed in a thoughtful way Mm -hmm. so that I can um, be considerate of others 
and help them move to their their next place, which may be different from another school's next place. Mm-hmm. But to be very cognizant of the different elements, the different cultures, the different driving factors. This is really critical to me in any learning environment. And I think international school teachers, for example, have to do that all the time as they move from school to school. Yeah. Um, and as a consultant, I have to do that every week. Yeah. You know, as I go to a different place. Listen, be aware, and uh, you learn so much when you go into different schools. And I think one of the things that Neil and I discuss in our podcast, our mindfulness podcast that we do, is that idea of listening and strategies for listening. And oftentimes we catch ourselves, you know, it takes a lot of practice. But right. as a listener, we can sometimes be thinking about what we're going to say next and reloading in our head. So you're actually missing exactly. key points uh, and you're not present. We actually were talking about that earlier. Yeah, and I think the cognitive coaching course that that I did really stressed the different types of listening, autobiographical listening, where you're listening and then making connections to your own life, you know, can sway you and and push you away from truly being present. So it is a difficult skill to develop, no question. And I think also, uh, and I think I've also developed this about myself, being trusting of myself at this point, I hope I am, is that that they're, they're... and I think teachers need to do this also. Trust their, a sensibility they have, an intuition they have about a child, that because of our caring, our innate caring, when we allow a lot of this to come through our caring and our real desire to do good and well in the world, is that um, we have to trust ourselves. And I think in education today, there's so much put on teachers that takes us away from self-trust, our self-knowing, mm-hmm. that we have to fit in these boxes and we have to you know, do all the... We have to, do things that don't make sense very often to us as educators. What we really know is right and true for children. And it's, I think it's put teachers in a big dilemma. Yeah. Uh, as a consultant, I don't have to be in that space quite the same way. And I have that luxury to be able to go in and, and really trust what I know, listen and add to, not bring any presumptions, I hope, but, but really work with people uh, in an authentic and that's that word again, but in an authentic way that really builds on what I know before it pulls in all aspects of of knowing. It reminds me of uh, I think it was Gladwell who wrote Malcolm Gladwell who wrote the book Blink, mm-hmm. and it was like we oftentimes negate that gut instinct mm-hmm. that we have, you know, because everything has to be informed by data right. and all the decisions we make, which is you know obviously uh, informing next steps based on data is very important but equally important is that gut instinct Mm -hmm. and making those decisions just based on those feelings especially as a teacher and our knowledge i mean it's not just it's that combination of the gut with the knowledge with our skills with our experience with the work we've done that brings us to this point as an educator and i if i had to stop and validate everything by research i would be stymied all the time yeah and i i think we have to let go of some of that uh, because we you know, we know what we're doing. Yeah. We're professionals. And that's what brought us here. Yeah. And I think it's a profession that's over overemphasis on research, often to the, the, the to the, uh, I'm saying to, my, to the, the real challenge. It's yeah. not always working. Yeah. Let's just put it that way. It doesn't always work for kids, yeah. for what's best for kids. Because yeah. sometimes we know what's best for kids. Yeah. Anything to add, Maddie? Well, I think these are great. What about you as a leader, though? What, what has kind of allowed you to kind of um, work towards your present role in education as a director of school? What, what are, is another intangible that has allowed you to achieve that? Well, I think um, just 
interest. I mean, purpose. It's just, it's just a privilege to work as an educator. It is a privilege it's to honor. work. It's an honor yeah, and it is a joy. Kathy talked about being happy. Yeah. It is a happy profession. We are with children. We are with great creative minds. We are with, you know, every day is an opportunity to learn. You think about that environment. It's just so wonderful. And so I think that's what motivates me is being around, again, people and ideas and tapping into that incredible human potential and the human endowments. And that's just wonderful. And I agree with Kathy. We're professionals. So we have professional judgment and that comes from head heart, gut, and we're understanding a lot of, and the journey, and we're understanding that a lot more, and I think not getting too technical in our work, but not also dismissing research over time, it's combining those wonderful... Which comes with years, like, there's no hacks, you know, we hear in this fast-paced world, everything is like a quick hack to do this, like shortcut to, to this destination, shortcut to this destination. Yeah. And what you are both describing is there is no hack yeah. to um, being a great educator. It takes yeah. years and, and years of hard work and experience, right? Yeah. And you can also, one of the joys is putting on different lenses at different times for different purpose. So Kathy was explaining one of her learning uh, circles and what children do, and they read for purpose, but using a different lens set. So it would allow you to access the same piece of material through what might we learn about how we could we dig in to make it more real or to be of service or to remind me some of the there's, other ones. When students read something, um, there's, let's say, four children. Four, usually I do this with kids in fifth grade and up. There'd be four students in this literature or discussion circle. Literature circle if it's fiction, discussion circle if it's something that's nonfiction related. One person would be the personal connector. So they would ask each of the members a question that, um, how does what we just did or read relate to personally? So if we start with the personal, right there you have a connection and mm-hmm. some level of of commitment to it to it um and it's very funny sometimes i've heard students say well i don't really have a connection to this but my uncle and the next thing you know they're finding it yeah, I mean, yeah. you know they they just they're not used to talking about things in this way sometimes then the second person is the topic connector um, if it's non-fiction if it's fiction they're the literature connector i want them to connect to other books mm-hmm. but if it's non-fiction it's what did you learn about this topic and they each could have read the same thing but they'll each find different knowings within that the third person is the service connector what here is going well or needs to be fixed or what idea did we just find so that they start looking with that sense of purpose of application that there's something i'm gaining here i can apply and then the fourth person asks questions regarding what more do we need to learn about so that we see that this is not a destination it is a journey we're never done with knowing which taps into that curiosity aspect curiosity and also to tap back into leadership you as students we are leading students in that journey of using these skills to tap into different ways of viewing in order to be purposeful and in order to feel connectivity and Kathy and I were talking about schools and leaders in a systemic way having that sense of purpose so as a leader you can always use tools to again really amplify those human you know connectivity and the endowments that make a difference and that give every member of your learning community a sense of purpose through sometimes how you structure things. And that's a joy and a gift. And part of what makes uh, an environment very dynamic is using those tools of... of well, and, and again, supported in Ron Richards' Cultures of Thinking book, Big Time, Definitely. is that 
sense of purpose. And again, he, he gives so many great examples uh, and tells so many great stories of teachers doing these types of things in their teaching space. And we saw videos of, yeah. of teachers in action kind of uh, that Inter- Spanish teacher. Yes. The Integrating that. I was thinking of that exact clip because one of the things Kathy and I have talked about is it's not siloed education right. where you say, oh, now we're talking about data. Oh, now we're talking about service learning. Oh, now we're talking about standards. But how you create an environment where these things are integrated in very meaningful, real ways, yeah. ways that allow all the people to feel a sense of purpose, including teachers, because they're really engaged and invested. And this is really critical, the sense of purpose, not just for the students, but for the teachers. Often when I do work with teachers, I'll ask them, when you were in school, uh, how many of you used to look out the window and wonder, why am I learning this? Right? Did you do that? Absolutely. Everybody raises their hand. Everybody raises their hand. And then I say, how many of you look out the window now and wonder, why am I teaching this? So if the, if the student, That's good if the teacher doesn't have a sense of purpose or clarity about why I'm doing this, how can, how can we ever expect the students to go, students, because the purpose of learning is not to pass a test. And this is part of our misthink, I would, I would say. The purpose of learning is to develop transferable skills and knowledge and dispositions that we can apply to all kinds of ways and situations that we're going to be in. Yeah, that's where the theater comes which, back. Which is also the to. transdisciplinary skills Absolutely. in the P1P, right? Yes. It's an, it should be yeah. in everywhere. Everything yeah. should be transdisciplinary. Middle school is built to be transdisciplinary. The, the conceptual framework of middle school is supposed to be transdisciplinary. And I don't think it should suddenly stop because mm-hmm. we get to high school. We should be constant because it's how the brain works. The brain, you know, we know about left and right brain, and I'm good with that. However, what it's really about is how the left and right brain are communicating to each other, the synapse. Mm -hmm. And what I've checked with neurologists is that if students are learning little boxes, they're straining to hold on to that content. But when they can see, even in higher higher grades, the connection between what they've been studying about cells and what's going on in civics, they make some connection their brain relaxes and retention goes up. So what we want to do is look for connectivity at all levels. Because as humans, we're seeking connectivity, and our brains are as well. So the brain, the body, the heart, the breathing. Yeah, well, this is where I want to throw in one thing. So my my passion and love is physical education. And for, you know, um, sport and physical activity absolutely changed my life. And... I got into physical education, which led me to consult in the area of physical education, which led to so many opportunities outside of physical education. But I think one of those common threads in what you're describing is the impact of physical activity on the brain and the research. So there's that added element of, you know, and this is what I tell classroom teachers all the time. When I go into classrooms and I see desks in rows, you know, kids are, are sitting the best classrooms are the ones that have that flexible, uh, agile learning space where things are being moved around on a constant basis, where kids are are active and engaged and constantly moving. Right, and they have reasons yeah. to get up and go over there. And, yeah. and I do a lot of interactive experiences with students, as I will be doing this week at CALS. And it's really amazing to me when, as part of the dynamic, it's obvious the students have to get up and move. But before they do this, can I move? as Asking permission consists. Yeah. I don't want. I want them to know that this is their space. Natural. 
that this is part of how we learn is we have to move because yeah. we all know what happens with the sedentary behaviors. It actually, you know, it actually turns learning off yeah, totally. rather than turns it on. I mean, all those yeah. kinesthetic knowings. So. Yeah. One of the things that I presented was a, a strategy that I developed in my PE program and throughout the years I, when I consulted at schools and I would observe teachers in action and I would say 90% of, of PE teachers have conversations with their students where the kids are sitting on the on the floor in front of them, teachers talking, explaining something, and then the kids get up and then go do an activity. So I introduced something called walk and talks. Oh, nice. So I, you know, the last five years that I was teaching PE, I very rarely had kids sitting on the floor. So I would pose that driving question, play some music, and then the kids would go on a walk and talk or a jog and talk. And sometimes I would be moving along with them. So we'd be walking as a class. I'm just walking demonstrating right now. So the speaker would be backpedaling, speaking to the group, and then the next person would come in and back. And so you're actually really engaged in physical activity, which always led to richer, more meaningful discussions. So that's something I introduced. I know Neela has done this with her uh, ELL students in the past, and, and some of the students that she works with is uh, the walk and talks down the hallway. You know, so many opportunities to embed movement. Nice. I would have, and I draw from my theater background, even though it was a while ago. When I before I would do writing with kids, I would have them go on a circus walk. And if we were trying to do long stories, I'd take longs. I would have them somehow physically, even high school kids, physically interpret what we're going to do before we did it, so that there'd be this physicality of learning. And I also, in one of my engaging teaching strategies, I do something called "Be the Concept," where they have to get up, and I'll say, "Okay." Be mitosis. You got ten seconds. I mean, and I mean, they look at you like what, and then they figure it out. And if be they the can, concept. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, so it's really great because they have to. And it started with be support, but you can. And a teacher, I'm going to do this with mitosis. That's why I thought of it. So, and the te- you don't have to know the answer. That's the good part. The teacher can't know the answer. This is another problem in education. We approach education thinking the teacher has to have all the answers. The best learning happens when the teacher also is on the journey. Absolutely. And I, I know one person who models that really well is your husband, Maddie, Cabby. I mean, he's incredible that way. He's on a learning journey with the students, and that's, that's optimum. And when teachers have to have everything mapped out, going towards these very set outcomes, they're going to get there through hell or high water, I think we've, we've really lost something so so precious and precious yeah. thank you and impactful we talk about agency and yeah. advocacy and it we, we don't want to kill it we want it to be really alive and when it's there's purpose and journeying and, and co-learning together it, it yeah. all comes alive i love when teachers i when i hear teachers talking out loud or thinking out loud with their yes. kids that is the sign of a great teacher because they are bearing themselves in what they don't know and that act of the teacher thinking out loud, making sense of what's being learned in the moment is so powerful. And, and it models that to the kids. And I think discovery is a key concept in this. And so I was one of the things I, I've been sharing with Maddie and others is that I think we have a passion pandemic out there. It's another way we pressure kids to use an adult term. Like everybody has to know their passion and great when you're nine. I mean, I don't know if we can guarantee that. But I do know, like you mentioned before, Maddie, if we start with interest, and interest builds questioning, which builds curiosity, which builds, you know, that leads to discovery. That will help kids find what a passion might be. And I, I think we have to really look at these different pathways so that we're not imposing uh, 
we're not limiting. I think we have to increase possibility for young people. Mm-hmm. And you had alluded to that as well. Yeah. One of the things that Carol Dweck, uh, her work, uh, she's gone on this little mission recently because a lot of her work with growth mindset uh, has led to a lot of, uh, there's a lot of misconceptions exactly. now. And, she, you know, everything's growth mindset, growth mindset, growth mindset. You have to have a growth mindset. But she's reminding people that we all have fixed mindset tendencies. Right. And what you have to do is to be aware of the fixed mindset voice within yourself and to, to really listen to it and to have discussions with it that kind of lets it know that it's okay to have a fixed mindset here, but, you know, let's just try to change our thinking a little bit, you know, rather than 100% growth right. mindset because that's yeah. not the reality. And you, you just mentioned something that is actually very helpful to me in the, the sense of talking to yourself. I once learned that talking to yourself is a sign of genius, and I do it all the time. So I, think <laughs> I, so I talked to myself constantly, and I yes. thought it was something wrong. And like, so I good, we can do it. We can talk out loud even. It's like, so I love to talk to myself. Yeah. Anyway, um, that's the laughter we were trying so much. So if we were to segue into um, my next question is about how your call to action over the last however many years has changed. So how has your call to action in education changed for you over the past however many years? In what ways has it, your call to action changed? Okay. I w- I, for me, I would start with um, the, the foundations which have not changed, which is to my, my uh, purpose in life is always to be um, making a difference in the lives of others. And so that has not changed at all. Uh, you know, that's my, my joy and privilege, again, as an educator, is to make a difference in people's lives through learning and through creating wonderful learning activities and through inspiring and through, you know, supporting students through achievement. Um, what has changed, I think, and it's a theme um, that's become very pronounced for me lately, is um, the idea of how we can more um, effectively create sustainable systems in education that do the kinds of things that Kathy was talking about and that I've been talking about in terms of really rich learning experiences for kids that are real and relevant and Mm -hmm. purposeful and also have the opportunity to make an impact in our world, which is so uh, needing some important change and so I would say the systemic part not being siloed being holistic looking for pathways that allow for change over time developing thinking cultures over time developing service cultures over time and it all comes back to culture and that's a lot of what Kathy and I have been talking about so I think my call to action has been very much in the last I used to be looking at different initiatives now I'm looking at culture and I'm right. looking very much at culture and how they, all the initiatives integrate into a culture that is beautiful and sustaining and wonderful for the learners in the culture. And yeah. for, that means radiating out to our larger culture, our school culture, our community cultures, our, our cultures all over the world, our right. international culture and our global culture. So culture is the thing that has really become the main focus of how I perceive all of education and how things integrate into an overall culture. Just building on some of that, because that's beautifully said, uh, is that one of the, the modalities I, I think about a lot is how language defines culture. And 
the words we use and how we approach work interfacing with any of the populations we do as educators, whether it's teachers, parents, children, other stakeholders, and making sure that we're using language that lifts us up. So, so for example, I don't call what we do in classrooms lesson plans anymore because we don't learn through lessons, we learn through experiences. So let's call them learning experiences, and that reframes how people think about Certainly work. Certainly not work. Don't call it work. <laughs> like right? Ron Richard says. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, it's learning. Cultures of yeah. learning. Yeah. 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 And the, so the language we, we use matters, in my opinion, deeply. Um, and it can elevate us. Um, and so looking at that as part of the... And I know, like, you mentioned Carol Dweck. You know, she, she chooses the words she's using very deliberately. And I think that's one of the hallmarks of my work as well, is how do we think about... And how, what do we say to kids? What, are we... Goal setting, or we're purpose driven. I mean, what are we doing? And it really does reframe. And the same for my work with service learning. Um, I think one of the factors that's changed for me is, you know, I do and I love introducing and inspiring and helping people understand what service learning is. However, now I think we have we have more agency right now. We've we have there's we we need to accomplish more. And it's not enough for me in service for kids just to say, well, I put up a poster, that's what I did, and other kids in my school are looking at it. That just doesn't cut it for me anymore. Mm-hmm. I think we have to hold ourselves to a higher standard to really make that difference and make it sustainable. So I'm looking at uh, how to coach and uh, encourage people to think about the kind of actions students do with service learning more dramatically, I would even say. Can you define now? I, I uh, We talked about this in the pre-show, yes. but... What is your definition of service learning? Well, it's wonderful you ask me that because actually in my workshops, I never do it. I let other people do it, and then I pull from that. But mm-hmm. I'm will for today because we're on the radio. Okay. <laughs> that my best way to define it is it's applying what we learn in an academic setting into an authentic way that improves changes or creates a better possibility for self and others. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's four key ways. And it, there's five stages of the service learning process. And what I love about the process is you can take this process and apply it to all kinds of ways of being active in the world. Uh, You can put it in a business setting. You can use it in a community development setting. Students first investigate what's going on, and they do it in a way that really deepens understanding and raises questions, and those questions don't end. A well-done investigation leads to more questions. Mm -hmm. It takes you to preparation. And all of this revolves around the curriculum so that you're moving the curriculum forward, not stopping it. So you're, you're preparing, you're getting deeper understanding, knowledge, you're connecting with others in the community, find out what else is going on, so that you can develop a plan of action. And the action typically can be direct service, working face-to-face with people, the environment, or animals, um, or it can be indirect, where you're creating a product, for example, that goes somewhere and you don't see the recipients, but you know you've validated, authenticated, it's what the need was. Everything revolves around an authentic need. And I think design thinking comes into that aspect of it, kind of design thinking cycle, yes. creating a, a product. Right. Yeah. Um, I have some differences with design thinking uh, that I think are significant, but I value what they're aiming for. Yeah. Um, uh, so there's direct, indirect advocacy and research service, and then all during the process you're reflecting. Uh, and I don't think it's a dirty word, even though I know kids react to it that way. Yeah. Because I do have a method of teaching reflection, and I did a great deal of that work in the new CAS guide in the IB system. Right. I was instrumental in that. So that reflection, in my opinion, should be never required. It should only be inspired. Mm. And students should reflect on the significant experiences they have, and that 
to experiences that call them to reflect. And when we have that mindset, it really shifts what reflection is. Um, and then demonstration, taking what you've done and demonstrating not just the, the service, but also the learning. Um, and so I don't call it a service learning project. I call it more of a process, service learning processor experience or adventure because it's about the journey of learning and it really draws and it and it values the inquiry cycle it's been inquiry based long before the term inquiry learning was there it's right. just all about that uh, it's really critical um, so with service learning uh, students have an ex- an experience that can be very deep however sometimes I've seen um, the service being shallow and it's off it can become another Tick off box that teachers. Well, we did our service; it's done. But what they've done is especially they have, with CAS and the hours required, yeah. right? And luckily, there's no more hours in CAS. The word yeah. hours isn't even in the guide anymore. Oh, okay. So yeah, they've that, shifted. Yeah. It was it's 50, all about 50, 50 before. And, and the CAS guide is actually following these five stages of service learning. They now okay. call them the, the CAS stages. That students are supposed to investigate, prepare, take action, reflect, and demonstrate. So for those not uh, aware of CAS, so it's. Um, Community, community. It's creativity. Oh, creativity action Act, they changed it. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, so it's creativity, which is uh, using all different modalities to express ourselves. Yeah. Um, it's now activity, which oh, is moving okay. towards a healthier well-being or state of being. Okay. So it's about our health and well-being. And then um, service, which is creating ways that we contribute to society around us that's significant. So what I've been challenging schools to think about in the terms of service is to look at four different ways to do service and four different mindsets, if you will, of service. One is that service can be kind. The service could be kind. It can be helping a person, a neighbor, or provide something we need. It could be helpful, provide books or resources that aren't there. Uh, It could be compassionate, um, and that's a term that I drew from a colleague of mine from IB, Chris Mannix. He said there's compassionate service where we're responding to, let's say, an earthquake or a Mm -hmm. severe issue that we just have to act really fast. But there's also should be disruptive service. I think we need to think of it, it can be disruptive. And I mean disruptive in a healthy way, the the kind of way that all these young techies do. They want to disrupt things. You know, Uber and Airbnb, these are disruptive. And service should be disruptive. And in that way, not change a system, change something so we don't go back into old or, or bad behaviors right. that we move forward and I've seen young kids do this. it's not just something older kids do but little kids can do things that are disruptive there were some kindergartners as an example in western Massachusetts who um, a child was brought up how they were afraid of hospitals and so then every kid's talking about being afraid of hospitals so the teacher said what can we do with a hospital to break that fear cycle so she called the nurse there and found a nurse who was interested and brought back all these ideas and the kids didn't like any of them so the kids decided they wanted to make a friendly place for children in an emergency room. So they were given a cubicle in a hospital to decorate, to make friendly for other children. Oh, that's so cool. And kindergarten kids. And this involved math and space and shape. This, all their curriculum markers were hit in ways the teacher couldn't even envision. I called, I talked to the teacher. I have to verify my stories. And it was extraordinary. But if, if I can just add another element to it, they did all this, and they had they debated bears or bunnies on you know, and they made a little video about hospitals for kids, and they thought what would make the children feel safe. They said our faces, so they made paper plate pictures of their faces and wove them together like a giant quilt. So they made the space wonderful for children. So two months after it was there, 
the nurse, the head of nursing came in to tell the students what had happened and how children at this hospital would often have to be held down by Velcro, you know, those horrible things that make them even more afraid. Mm. And since they've had this room, they haven't had to use the Velcro straps once for any child. Oh, that's great. But a second story happened that was even more unexpected. An elderly man there had hurt his eye and he had to be left alone in that room for a few minutes because all the other rooms were taken. And he didn't want to be left alone. And the nurse said, I'll be back in just a few minutes. But he was frantic, this elderly man. When she came back, he was calm and laughing. He said, what is this room? And she told him the story of how the children had created this room for other children. And he said, no, they made this room for me. Beautiful story. Oh, that's great. So service learning, that's for kindergartners, but we could go all the way up. With, with kids diving to do work with scientists about repairing coral reefs. I find service learning as a vehicle for K-12 and higher ed for children and teachers to make the kind of difference and significant change in our society that we need to, and then to learn how to carry that forward. Yeah. So they, they graduate school knowing the term pro bono. Yeah. You know, oh. whatever field they go into. There was a, um, uh, again, uh, in TED Radio Hour, one of the guests shared a, uh, her story, which was, um, I hope I'm getting this, this correctly. What, what country was, um, where did it, there was an Ebola outbreak a few years ago in yeah, Africa? Yeah, there were several countries. So there was a, a doctor that had gone there to do work and realized quickly that, you know, these patients that were being helped by medical staff who were covered from head to toe, you could not see their face. Mm. It was such a, uh, there was no human connection, right? So she did something as simple as taking the photo of the doctor and then pasting it to the chest oh, so that the face, so the patients could see the face of who was serving them. Nice. And it, it was, you know, allowed for that element of human connection. Yes. So that's like service learning in the adult world. Right. And this is obviously what we're, we're trying to educate young people and lead them on the path to take action as adults in a service learning sense. And this is in part where language matters. We're not there to help others. We're there to engage with. It's not to do something to. It's to be engaged as partners. Because what we make sure we don't do is create this um, hierarchy you know, and extend that. But we're always going in, again, back to listening and learning from others so that we're learning and creating a sense of authentic connection. All my words are coming back to me. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's creating And that comes connection. when you're listening and learning and you are thinking about the patient. You might even be cued by the patient or the patient might come up with the innovation. Right. And exactly. then it's a two-way innovation. Exactly. And there's so many examples of that kind of partnership that's transformative for people. Which is a learning process. Yes. Right. Yeah. So we have yes. to be very, and that's a role a teacher has in this, to make sure that they guard that a little bit. When they see those things emerging, that they, through their brilliance as educators, help the children understand these kind of processes. And so that they they are... You know, I don't want kids to go, let's say, to a remote village to do something and think they've given a kid, you know, and come back and it's their reflection. And this happens often in some settings. Kids, I came back and found out my life is privileged and I'm so glad I don't have to live. No, I want them to come back and go, I met this guy who can fix things with with almost nothing. And there's people who know about culture and history like I never heard. I want them to value the lives of others yeah. and, and learn about community in the world in that way. Yeah, our friend John Rinker who I interviewed on the podcast actually last year, yeah. <clears throat> reminds me of somebody like that, just yeah. constantly trying to make the world a better place and, and to teach kids you know, yeah. in, a, in a very authentic and relevant way. Yeah. 
Um, this will be a good time to segue into my next question, which is all about um, the biggest obstacle that you had to overcome in your journey. What, what would that be, Maddie? Well, I think as educator, I mean, certainly there are personal, personal um, obstacles, but as an educator, I think it's the obstacle of sort of how institutions are resistant to change. That would be the biggest obstacle and watching over time, and again, this is a 30-year career of watching sometimes things revert or things were too siloed so that the kinds of change we're talking about um, that's really wonderful and profound and systemic, not the you know, learning in spite of the system, but the learning because of the system that we're after. Um, I think that that has been the biggest obstacle. So that's why I said when you said what's, you know, uh, what's the call? The call is to making learning cultures that aren't subcultures in spite of the dominant learning culture. It, there's there the learning cultures that are completely inspirational mm-hmm. as dominant culture. So that has been the obstacle. And I think um, many of us have seen when we go back to a school we've been in formerly and there's a new initiative or a new leader or things have not been sustained or that has been something I've been reflecting a lot on because I would like to see change that is positive and powerful and I have seen it and I've seen it come through the incredibly inspirational people like Kathy and I've seen it come because of children themselves and their voices and their ability to um, beat the system so to speak but I'm engaged and the call is to not beat the system it's to transform the system into something incredibly wonderful and I've been in systems that are incredibly wonderful and I want to be part of that and leading part of that for um, both whatever school I'm serving in or the council of schools that I will be serving for and toward right. in the future. So that's that's my obstacle. Change aversion. I, I want to say ditto, <laughs> number one, because change in people's response to even the word change has to change. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that change is all there is. I heard Bill Clinton speak once. He said, if you don't like change, live in a prison. I mean, we are always amidst change. Um, so I'm going to go in a different direction only because you said all that so well. So... The thought I have is time. People say to me, I mean, they'll say, we want to teach in this way. We know it's fabulous to teach in this way. In fact, we believe our students will do better and we will be better if we teach this way, but we don't have time. And first of all, it's not about time. That's the number one problem. It's about how we use the time we have. Mm -hmm. And it's not about we need additional time. It's looking at how we're teaching and to adjust our teaching practice. Because service learning, for example, or any best practice, you don't stop teaching. It's how you teach this important content and structures. However, what we've done in our world of education right now is we have so many restrictions and obligations and boxes and things that teachers have to do or meet or assessments. We're talking about how kids are getting assessment phobic. And what what we've lost sight of, I think, if I'm speaking in wide strokes, broad strokes, is that learning happens in the blank spaces, that we need to create more blank space. Mm -hmm. 
that if a child does not learn every single thing about the hydrologic cycle in grade four, they're going to visit again in grade seven. And if we have more space in there for them to learn something and use it and to deepen their personal practice with it, that actually they'll be more effective as people and thinkers, which is what we're really aiming for. And they'll have transferable knowledge. It's not just about recitation of what I, the facts. So what I go into schools often and talk about blank space and how do we create some of that. And teachers are really recognizing that that has tremendous uh, validity and it's shift, creating shifts in some approaches to thinking and learning. Uh, and I also think that what we're doing with assessment needs to radically change. I, I do a lot of work now in, in rethinking how we approach assessment because I don't think assessment should be a, a point in time. Assessment should be as worthwhile as the learning process itself, mm-hmm. and assessment should actually move the learning forward. So I, I'm coming in with some of these ideas, and sometimes the, the fear of change creates resistance. However, I do think people are recognizing that some of what we're doing right now really isn't working. It's not working for teachers, students, or schools. Especially with such a focus on summative assessment, yeah. right? Yeah. So. yeah. So I think there needs to be people who are willing to step outside of these boxes and go back to what... It's not going back to what we... It's not like the good old days were always there. But to use what we do know of how kids learn. I mean, we have like we have the research, we have our intuition, we have our knowledge, we have our experience, and let's create some space for that to happen. We can look at other places. I know Finland people talk about a lot, and I know people say, "But it's all this, it's all that." But there are lessons to be learned in many different school settings um, that are doable, and I don't think it requires much except um, let's do, let's go for it. Yeah. I'm going to return back to um, my field of physical education, and uh, one of my friends, Dr. Dean Krelars, is a very well-known researcher in Canada in, in health and physical education. He's from the University of Manitoba. He is single-handedly responsible. So PE teachers always say, we want more time. We want more time. We want more time. Right? So he is single-handedly handedly responsible for convincing the government of Manitoba to institute more time for PE. However, through his research, he found that despite the fact that PE teachers, uh, more time was devoted to, to the PE program and kids were getting double the amount of time that they were before, there was greater levels of disengagement because PE was being taught in a very traditional way that was leading like fitness testing and, and uh, very sport-specific um, PE units which was leading to disengagement because of the traditional nature and the way that PE was taught, disengagement was on the rise. So that was an indicator to him to kind of revolutionize uh, the teacher prep system for PE um, to really focus on um, kids' strategies to get young people to embrace being physically active for life under their own terms and conditions. So he introduced a lot of like like circus units and oh, PE, yeah. lots of different types of things. But that idea of time that you mentioned, we say we don't have enough time, but then if you're given more time and your, your teaching doesn't transform, shift. 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 So it has to go together. Exactly, right? And I, I learned, I did take circus classes, so I'm all for that one. Yeah, circus is <laughs> I can juggle any fire, so yeah. let's get down to it. <laughs> The other thing that I was thinking of when you talked about um, blank spaces is a book that Neil and I read called Ego is the Enemy with Ryan Holiday, an amazing book. 
that I gave to Kumar just before the holidays to read. Um, so much valuable learning in there, but he talks about this one strategy that's called the blank cat canvas strategy. Mm-hmm. And essentially, you give the canvas to those um, people that, that if you, you're a leader, you give a blank canvas to them and allow them to paint their own pictures. So it's a beautiful metaphor for um, removing control and compliance and increasing autonomy and engagement. You just hit on a word that I just want to pause for a moment is the word control. Is I'll often ask in my, my seminars, I'll say, how many of you are willing to admit that most teachers are control freaks? And all their hands go up, as you can imagine. I say, well, admission is the first step to recovery. So <laughs> yeah, the whole idea is... Yeah. <laughs> Teachers have to let go, and the more we let go, the more learning is going to happen. Yeah. And I don't care if they say, I'm just going to let go 5%. I just want them to start. The more we let go, they go, oh, my gosh, I didn't know kids could do this. Yeah. And another method that we've talked about um, that I talk about is underdirect. The more we overdirect, we take away all the things we're aiming for. So it's, it's you know, there's the language of learning is really critical, and I think we can do a lot. With, uh, I think we can really transform a lot. Start gently and then go in for the, yeah. you know, for the, Maddie, I'm not going to say the, just go in for the long haul. Yeah, Maddie, what's your advice for teachers who get stuck, like Kathy, you alluded to this earlier, the curriculum and product and content, and they some teachers drive content down students' throats, you know, and it's all about the product, but what's your advice to teachers who sometimes get caught in this world of, of um, content coverage and student learning outcomes and making sure that they check all the boxes. Um, it's my belief that there's a lot of flexibility in, in the way that they can use curriculums and student learning outcomes, but what's your advice to teachers who sometimes get too caught up in that world of checking boxes in terms of achieving student learning outcomes? It's a great question because mm-hmm. I think it's real and it's systemic. And we've talked about it just with some colleagues last night over exactly. socially how people feel that there's this um, causal loop going around that they're a part of that creates, so the summative is so important, so then the kids take on that language so that the kid, that becomes the driver for kids as opposed to curiosity mm-hmm. or the blank page or you know, exploration. And so I would answer your question by saying it happens one intentional conversation at a time. And and I think these kind of conversations that are rich are very powerful. And when you add creativity and purpose and passion and some of the attributes we were talking about to it and knowledge and judgment and professional wisdom, change happens. And I've seen it. And that's how we have to start. So we have to start by collecting ourselves as educators, having the conversation and then making the change. You know, it could happen through disruption, but it could ha- also happen through very intentional, you know, um, inspirational connectivity. And that's what I've seen in school. So people come and they say, I care about this. I want to change this. I want to shift. I want to make a little intentional change in my practice or with the system. I'm going to go talk to my principal or mm-hmm. with my colleagues. I'm going to talk to the pedagogical people on my team through, look at things through that lens. Um, and, Kathy has another process of change, intentional change, that is very impactful, which is to look at change, to decide whether you want to make a change. And you could add the steps, but it's to really make a commitment first to a change you want to make, mm-hmm. and then to come up with a plan for change, which is what you would do, like your to-do list almost. Um, and then from there, what's the support you need? Because we're very gregarious by nature. Coaching comes to mind when yes. you yes. yes. So what kind of support do you need? So that's the human element. So if you want to change something of your own behavior, you might 
want support from the, the administrator. You might want support from the kids. Um, but being you might say something like, I wish to not talk about assessment this term. And I'm not going to use the word assessment because we're talking about the learning experience. That's cool. Yeah. And you can make that a commitment and you can tell children in your class, you're not going to hear me say somebody this this term and I need your help with it. So I need you to flap at me if I use a term yeah, because come it might up be with more of a habit. And then you, once you make that commitment, so you, you, you find the resource. So you have your plan, you look for evidence. Yeah, I mean, sorry, you have your plan, then you have the support you need, and then you put it into action, which means you set like a clock. How many weeks or months or whatever am I going to try this? I usually say weeks because you need to check back. Mm-hmm. So how much, So maybe we're gonna, I'm going to go for this new approach for three weeks or two weeks. And then you have to then, at the end of that time, through observation, through talking, through feedback, see what's, what's happened. Now, evidence is the fourth area though it's like what do you think might happen so you're kind of forecasting or foreshadowing so it's not a goal thing it's just this is a possibility so you're just aiming for possibility but you you're open-minded about it so it's it's based you know so you have what do you want to change and you make a commitment to that you look at what's my plan my support my action and my evidence and then from there you circle back what do we need to change so I've been I've developed this a long time ago I've written about it and because I do workshops also on change theory and creating Mm -hmm. a culture of you know Improving school climate and culture. And it really is a very effective process. And you can really teach this to kids also so they can start applying it in their own lives. Built on the concept of a plus delta. Yeah. Life skills. It's, and if you essential. take it as action research in your classroom, you're a teacher, you say, I want to do a little research. I want to see if our outcomes could be just as strong if we never use the word summative. And I also, you know, you, you do that and you do a little study because you also have some things that might be non-negotiables like where you get to in terms of a set of core skills at the end of the term. But you might want to shift your practice or your engagement or your language or the culture of the classroom. You might want to shift that, but you might want to still come out with superb outcomes, which you always do. So then you study that and you tell the kids and you engage them in it and you see, and then you observe yourself and you see at the end, which Kath is saying, you look for the evidence at the end. And that's what I would share. So how to make a shift, look for change, follow the, the steps of change and see, investigate yourself and see if you can have an impact. And a plus delta, which many of your listeners are probably familiar with, where you first list what's going well, what would you want to change, you can use along the way. Mm -hmm. And that's a very viable methodology, very simple. And kids love doing it and they also like leading it. So these are just approaches that um, I use a lot with, I model a lot in my my work with schools because I think it, it gives kids a real viable way to have a voice and have a choice and yeah. to be more of a participant in the learning so it's not just happening to them they have more of a stake in their own success yeah so i've got a question for you now kathy is how how do teachers so we've all seen in our work in education teachers who are stuck and stagnant and not moving forward and i don't want to say content with that but i i've seen it mm-hmm. where they're just a little too content with everything's okay and exactly. good, just, you know, everything's fine, leave me alone. What, how can a teacher know if they're stagnant or stuck? What questions do they need to ask themselves or, or what's a, a advice that you can give to a teacher who may be stuck? It's a really good question. No one's ever asked me that. So thank you for that new way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe the basic question is, what have I changed lately? What's my growing edge? And that was a question when I 
worked in a nonprofit years ago, I used to ask my staff, what's your growing edge? And they would go, what, what do you mean by, you know, we should all be growing. You know, if we're doing the same, same all the time, that's not a real indicator that we're personally growing. So I think by asking, what's my growing edge? What have I changed lately? And how can I reimagine um, myself or my work? How could I imagine? Or um, one of my colleagues always says, what's my blind spot? What am I missing? Yeah. So I think some of those kind of questions can help us look. And then also, um, and, and this is something I know Maddie would jump all over, is that we're not a teachers by ourselves. You know, we, we need to be in, in community with other teachers. So ideally, that teacher would not be working solo to figure that out. You might be my teaching buddy or partner or as part of a cohort, and we might get together and say, and you might challenge me with some of that. Well, what happened? You said that there's a dialogue, and it's not just me sitting there by myself. And certainly not surrounding ourselves with echo chambers so that right. just people that just tell us the same thing, tell us things we want to hear. Exactly. You know, I think challenging I think, ourselves. Yeah, I think we also have to be very authentic in those conversations with colleagues about, I mean, most of us want to thrive. And thriving means Mm -hmm. development. I mean, it just does by definition. We don't want to stagnate. Stagnation is not good for any living being. So, but I also think we have to own the culture that we described earlier, which is a culture where many half-baked initiatives come Mm -hmm. and take time, and there's pressure put on the professional, and we have to understand within that context, there may be a reason that people are change-averse. And what we don't want to do is say, well, that's okay. We want to say, how do you stay happy, thriving, moving forward, motivated, impactful? But recognizing that sometimes there are forces that may be cultural, that may make people more hesitant to change. And that, be very aware of that and to still tap into the human endowment that we know is there of thriving in an environment that allows for growth, which Kathy's talking about. So we have to use all of our resources to try to do that for every individual. Now, if individuals can't or don't want to, or it's too, you know, they are stagnate, we always think of the kids and we have to do our business, which means sometimes, you know, don't water the rocks, as someone says, don't water the rocks. So we, but we have to, with every living being, water it and try to bring about its, its thriving condition, I think. Yeah. And as a consultant, I'll often come in and when I find those places, look for what, what, would, what could inspire that person or what's, what's the point of curiosity I might be able to tap in. Yes. And that's part of what my job is then, is to walk in and look for those. Um, and so there's different ideas I've I, I found are the kind of things that will wake up even the sleeping giant, you know, just to make them, you know, oh, what's, I want to know about that. So it's, it's finding those points of curiosity for people. And, and, and in that sense, also doing it through relationship, knowing what they do, what they do well, honoring that, and then just seeing what will help them bloom from a little yeah. sprinkle. I like what you said, growing edge, and I've decided that in each uh, episode I have a title, and I work so hard to think of a title that captures the conversation. So the title of this podcast, this episode, is going to be "What's Your Growing Edge?" Oh, nice. Okay. Nice. I think that's because everything we're talking about is what is your growing edge? Mm-hmm. Like you as a leader, mm-hmm. you as a consultant, mm-hmm. me as in my role as a pedagogical coach, mm-hmm. we have to constantly challenge ourselves to to grow. And life is so much more meaningful, personally and professionally, 
when we know what our growing yeah, edge exactly. is. So I'm going to segue over to the Margaret Heffernan audio clip. Um, so to give people some backstory, actually my return listeners, um, they will have heard this before because I've used this audio clip with a number of my guests. Um, and to me, it's, it's such a, uh, such a great um, audio clip that captures the essence of work and the meaning of work. So um, I got this audio clip from the TED Radio Hour. Um, so I'm just giving a shout out to TED Radio Hour and the host of the show, uh, Guy Raz. Uh, he gave me permission to use his clips. Um, so I'm going to play the audio clip now. It's about a minute. And then you're each going to take a turn uh, just kind of describing what resonates with you the most in regards to this clip. So I'm going to play it now. again, you know, the large number of companies I work with, and I'll say, you know, what's the driving goal here? And they'll say, $60 billion revenue next year. And I look at them and I say, you have got to be joking. What on earth makes you think that everybody's really going to give it their all to hit a revenue target? You know, you have to talk to something much deeper inside people than that. You have to talk to people about something that makes a difference to them every day if you want them to bring their best and do their best and feel that you've given them the opportunity to do the best work they've ever done. That clip means so much to me when I hear that, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, what are your first thoughts, Maddie, when you, when you listen to that? I think the phrase that resonated with me is the phrase deeper inside. You know, that was the phrase because you have to be touched deeper inside. And I think some of the themes we've been talking about right now, whether it's, you know, anyone becoming stagnant or what has been the driver through the years of education, it's the deeper inside piece. I know for me as a learner, from my kindergarten self to today it's when I'm touched deeply and I am touched deeply regularly by the people I work with and by the voices of children in the schools and but all of us can do our best work when we're touched deeply inside um, and allow that touch and so that would be the thing that resonates most with me about her messaging yeah and this is where I have a bit of difficulty at times when we when we schedule meetings and we kind of check the box sometimes as as educators. We have to cover this, 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 this in in the meeting, and we oftentimes negate opportunities to talk about things that mean something deeply to us. And when we begin to have those conversations, just like this discussion today, uh, it's so empowering, you know. And and what resonates with you, Maddie, is different than what resonates with Kathy and me, but it's having a chance to discuss those things that uh, is very empowering and motivating and inspiring, you know? Gee. Yeah. For me, it's, it was that line about deeper and also the sense of purpose. Um, it, was, it was curious that she asked him what his goal was, but then she was dissatisfied with the goal. She was looking for something deeper, but she'd asked for the goal. So 
I would have, I would have been curious if she asked him, what's your purpose? Maybe he would have said the same thing, raise all this money. But I always find purpose gets something deeper or is aiming for something deeper. Um, so I, I resonated with that very deeply about, uh, what is the purpose here? Like, what are we really aiming for? And when we pause for that, as we've said, so much of what we've talked about relates to this clip. When we pause to make sure we know what our purpose is, I think we have a better reason for showing up. We will do our best work. I think it's, it's the unifying, it connects us all. Mm-hmm. And your purpose may be different from mine, but if I can honor yours and you know what mine is, I mean, there's something very significant that we can create together. Mm-hmm. And that creates that, it helps remove some of the silos mm-hmm. and helps bring us into one frame, ter- framework in terms of working for the benefit of young people, which is what our schools are about, to make a difference in their lives. Yeah. But again, the importance of um, conversations really need to change. The conversations that we have with our colleagues and can, you know, just opportunities to, to really um, learn about one another and, yeah. and uh, what's really important to you as an educator. Right. You know, and we can really honor each other. Um, I'm going to segue into the last part of the podcast, which is the speed round. Okay. So this is something new that I just started um, in the last couple podcasts, and I, I kind of like it. Um, I, I would end each podcast before with a hot seat question. Uh, that my guest wouldn't know about. Um, the, this is essentially five hot seat questions. So the, the goal here in the speed round is I will ask you a question and then you give me a quick answer to summarize. And then when we go through the five things that we're going to discuss, you will then reflect back and pick one area to dig deeper into to share one last bit of insight or wisdom or, or a lesson that you've learned related to that area. Okay, are you ready for the speed round? Ding, ding. Sure. Let's try. Okay, let's try. <laughs> okay, so number one is what is the best book you have ever read from outside the world of education? that you have been able to extract meaning from and apply back into the world of education. So for me, I, I might say one of my favorite books of all time is uh, The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho. So there's so much there, right? But I'm just going to just say the name of the book and that's it. Paulo Coelho, The Alchemist. Matt. So I am going to say All the Light We Cannot See best book I've read in the last 10 years and it has lots of themes in it that are very relevant um, and it's got children in it and it's got learning in it. Who's the author? The author, I am forgetting. So I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, we'll I will have it. to we'll find, find it okay, no because he, so he, and he won an award for that book and it takes place in uh, you know pre-Nazi Germany and then Nazi Germany so it's got a lot of themes about humanity and its degradation as well as critical dilemmas for human beings when they reach the kind of hardship that people would have under those circumstances, which I think is very relevant to learning today and some of the issues that we're facing that are quite difficult. So that's why I chose that book. There are other favorite novels I have, but that book had an impact. There's only one book that will not leave my head from when I thought about this, and it's uh, The Little Prince. Oh, I've carried that book with me for decades. Yeah. Uh, And it's it taught me so much and continues to about the mysteries of life and about beauty and about the precious nature of life. And I think those are things I carry with me all the time as an educator. Okay. 
Uh, number two, so you're going to complete the sentence. Oh, Gratitude is. Kathy, we'll start with you. Everything. Gratitude is everything. Excellent. Full stop. Yeah. Gratitude is essential and allows learning, joy, framing, caring, kindness. I could go on and on. Okay. I think everything is better. I'm <laughs> just trying to give you the big long list of what yeah. that everything is. <laughs> okay. Uh, Maddie, I cheated. I went for the one word. She went for the one word. <laughs> um, Maddie, you're going to complete the sentence now. My biggest fear is... My biggest fear is humans' ability to be destructive. Um, My biggest fear is silence. Uh, And I don't mean the beauty of silence outside by the Red Sea here. I love this kind of silence. It's that if, if people become complacent and silent at times when we must be loud and stand up, that would be my greatest fear. Okay. Uh, number four, uh, we'll go with you, Kathy, first, is what is a life ritual or routine that you embrace and put into practice regularly in your life? It doesn't have to do with education, does it? No. Um, if I'm home and my husband comes home, I greet him at the door. There's something about always welcoming him and always seeing him every day and just being so glad he's there. Mm-hmm. So that I've been... I, I learned years ago that one of the most important parts of a marriage is not taking each other for granted. Mm -hmm. And that's how I act that out in my life. Lovely. Maddie? Well, we have, in a similar way, um, a ritual that's a family one, which I'm now participating in with my sweet husband, but for years it was with the whole family, which is we sit at the table at 6 o'clock and we laugh and share and tell stories and... Uh, that has been something we've done all through the years and never mm-hmm. been still doing it to this day, mm-hmm. and it's a wonderful family tradition. Yeah, we were reminded by that um, during our, our trip to uh, Italy and Germany and Paris at Christmas time, and just every meal together with mm-hmm. the boys. And, and gratitude is, is hugely important to us. And for us, it's that we end every day with um, just getting together with our two boys, Eli and Ty, who are 11 and 13. Mm-hmm. And we all just say a few things that we're thankful for. That's great tradition. And, and sometimes the boys are tired and they might say, oh, what he said. Yeah. <laughs> and that's okay. Yeah, of course. You know, they don't always have to participate, right. but they're present for it. Yeah. And it's just something that's, that's very important to us. Um, so lastly, um, number five, if someone was to write a book about you at the end of your career... What would the title of the book be? Maddie. <laughs> the title would be Grow. Grow? Okay. Oh, goodness. What a beautiful one. Um, ask me the question again so I get it fresh in my brain. If someone was to write a book about you at the end of your career, what would the title of the book be? Inspired. Inspired. Great. Um, now, looking back at the five questions, so reminding... You, uh, the best book you ever read outside the world of education. Uh, gratitude is, my biggest fear is, life ritual or routine or the title of the book. Now you each have to pick one of those areas to close the show off with, with one la- bit of wisdom, insight, whatever it is that you want to say. And we'll start with Maddie. Good. And I'm going to use Kathy's Gratitude is Everything. Okay. <laughs> 
Am I allowed to? Absolutely. You're the first one that, well, I guess this is the first episode where I've had two people on. Okay, wow. Oh, she said it better than me, so I'm, I'm, I'm saying what she said. Uh, gratitude is, is just such a nice frame of mind for the life journey that we've been talking about, for the odyssey, for education, for, um, for remaining inspired, for remaining you know, for growing, yeah. for really not stagnating. I think if one can adopt that um, that gratitude stance, it's just very, very um, helpful and generative. And so that's where I think I would end and just say one thing, even having just seen the, the movie Collateral Beauty, where it's a lot of pain in in life. The theme of that movie was about even being able to feel gratitude and express it even in incredible moments of loss, I think is a very, it's, it's hard to do and one has to stick with oneself trying to do it if, mm-hmm. if one ever has the kind of pain that, that the protagonist had in that film of losing a child or anything as, as uh, severe as that. But I do believe we can do that as human beings and we can continue to reach for gratitude and to grow through assuming a, a grateful stance. So. Mm-hmm. Personally and professionally. Both. Yeah. Both. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm going back to gratitude too because I can't not. It's just my, <laughs> yeah. it's, gratitude is very significant in my life. It's something that um, I've, I treasure is that place. Um, I, if I ever found myself not in the place where I was experiencing it, I would... I don't. I, I would probably just have to go home and just sit and look out the window for the rest of my life or something. But um, or it's just very strong. And one of the the message for me, one of the statements that came to me one time when I was looking for something, uh, I was I was needing my own internal advice. I don't know any other way to put it. Mm-hmm. And I remember it was kind of being in a somewhat meditative place of. Okay, what's the message I need right now? It's one of those moments. I remember exactly where I was. I need a mess. I need something. And the phrase that came to me is temper excitement with gratitude. Hmm. And so that's been a mantra of mine for a very long time that um, even when I'm ecstatic, you know, recently my daughter just got engaged. And right there, I mean, I just wanted to pause and just feel that gratitude. You know, it's just always, you know, make gratitude central to who I am and how I am. And I think if I can do that, that will be kind of like my beacon, since I'm here, a beacon to follow. Yeah. Nice, yeah. Which I think as a teacher, as an educator, as as uh, having uh, opportunities on a daily basis to impact our colleagues and the students, Mm -hmm. um, we're in a position to be grateful every single day for that opportunity. Exactly. And I think that's what I've... Probably the biggest thing that I've learned um, as an educator is that it is an honor and a privilege every day to show up and, you know, we're going to have days where it's difficult and, you know, we might not want to be there, but keeping in mind that we have the potential to impact the lives of our colleagues and uh, students is the motivation and inspiration needed to pull ourselves out of our doldrums and to put life into perspective. Right? And we never know where that will go. That's the beauty of it. We talked about that we don't know where it all goes, Mm -hmm. but we just know that when we give it our heart 
and our best thoughts yeah. that we, we trust. We, we grow. We, we do grow. Yeah. We grow. Your book time. We know our growing edge. Yes. Right? <laughs> um, so to close off, um, I just, uh, where can people find you on, you know, so I'm, I'm, uh, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions with social media, but mm. for, for me, it's allowed me to connect with some amazing educators sure. and to, um, if, if I can't find the answers out or I'm stuck, I have a whole network worldwide that I can exactly. access. So for me, it's been, uh, just a huge, uh, like such a wonderful opportunity and a huge learning curve for me. But so a lot of my listeners are, uh, it, it, social media presence. They have a social media presence. So, where can people find you if they want to learn more about you? And we haven't spoken about your books, but um, why don't you just give people before sharing your your Twitter sure. handle? Uh, just uh, give us the title of your books, and I'll include links in the show notes. So, the complete guide to service learning is a book that will give you all you need. It's an easy to use book and has a digital download attached to it that you get an additional 185 pages of support materials. So that's that's used all over the world. Okay. It's also available in Chinese, okay. so, so you know. Um, and then uh, the books I wrote with Philippe Cousteau are Going Blue, A Teen Guide to Saving Our Oceans, Lakes, Rivers, and Wetlands, and Make a Splash, A Kid's Guide to the Same Idea. Excellent. So those are three wonderful books that are still in print. Okay. Um, and you can find me on my website, uh, CBK, Catherine Berger K, CBKAssociates.com, okay. and also at my full name, uh, Catherine Berger K on Facebook, and CBKAYE22 uh, on Twitter. Uh oh. Is it, or just CBK, uh, I think it's just CBKAYE. Okay. I'll, on I'll find it as yeah. well. At CBKAYE for Twitter. Okay. And I, I stay involved, so I'm out there. Okay, good. Um, I will include that and connect with you on, on Twitter. So Perfect. if anybody listening has any questions about service learning, I'm sure that uh, they can throw them your way. I would love to. I'd yeah. love to. And I travel around the world. I do summer institutes, and I do weekend workshops, and I visit schools. So glad to know what people would like. Excellent. Okay, Maddie. Great. So I have my... Um, I'm Madeline Hewitt on Facebook, and I have Madeline Hewitt at Koust. Um which you can find on the Castle Schools website. Okay. Are two ways to get a hold of me. I also have a LinkedIn account, and um, that's you're, it you're for now. You're on Twitter. You're on Twitter. I'm on Twitter, and I'm not. Can't remember my handle at um, the moment. So I'll, I'll find it. Yeah. And I'll include it in the show notes now. Maddie, uh, just to close out the show, why don't you tell people about your next move and what you're going to be doing? Great. So. My next move after this incredible odyssey at the Kaus School in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is to move to um, Athens, Greece in July 2017, where I will be uh, starting as the next executive director of NISA, which is the Near East South Asia Council of International Schools. So the job is um, actually running a regional office of schools that are united, independent schools that are all international schools, mm -hmm. that are united with a common purpose of growing and sustaining um, professional development and having systemic, sustainable professional development in yeah. those schools. And so there are schools that range from Athens uh, near to Bangkok mm -hmm. and the whole region that um, is from North to Southeast Asia. And bringing your growing edge to that new role and yes. taking on that journey and bringing your insight and wisdom and 
I will give it my all. Yeah, I know you will for sure. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you both very much. My, my podcasts are usually like 40 minutes to 60 minutes. And this one is one hour and 46 minutes. And the time just flew. And it was such a great discussion. <laughs> We had doubles. It doubles. <laughs> right. It doubles. So it's, it's, it was a pleasure. And you ask great questions. Oh, you make you. it so easy and such yeah. a pleasure. Oh, really. Thank you very much. I love really. doing what I do with this. And, you know, this will be, I'm going to get this out this week. So it'll be on iTunes probably by Wednesday. Oh, wow. Um, so my podcast is sponsored by 21st Century Learning Radio Network in Hong Kong. So I just send them the audio file and they, they get it out there and send me the link. Um, so this will be my 43rd episode. Great. And I have learned so much. It's been an incredible journey. I've had Olympians on. I've had uh, best-selling authors. I've had the National Geographic Adventure of the Year on with his work um, with Micro Adventures. Uh, uh, I've had um, professional athletes on. I've had great educators, people in business, creative directors, like, and every single one of them. The growing edge, like you, you talk about, there's so many common threads and so many commonalities between all of my guests. Uh, and that's what I love to share is how they strive for personal and professional excellence. So thank you again. And everybody, thanks for listening today to today's episode with uh, Madeline Hewitt, Maddie Hewitt, and uh, Kathy Berger Kay. And uh, I hope you come back to listen to future episodes. Thanks for listening to the Run Your Life podcast by Andy Bassley. To check out show notes, get some more information about Andy as well as his guests, head to our website, 21clradio.com.